The Pacific Southwest of Mexico is a complex and immensely rich region that has an enormous ethnic diversity. Dozens of microclimates and very distinctive and unique local cuisines that bring together the abundance of seafood from the coastal Riviera with the seasonal produce of its valleys, mountains and semi-desert landscapes. The gastronomic diversity of the Pacific Coast West is so widely different that underlines the fact that Mexico is but an abstract construction of a nation of nations, true to its indigenous origins, reflecting the identity of its 68 ancestral tribes and the many generous additions that migrants from all around the world have brought with them. You're listening to episode 49 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook and author, and on this podcast I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasachipotle.com. You can subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the show using your favorite podcast app. Hello, everyone. I hope you are enjoying the spectacular colors and spirit of renewal that autumn brings. I don't think I need to say that it is my favorite season, but I do believe there's something magical about it and the way nature invites us to let go of things past and get ready to start fresh. If this is the first time you are listening to the show, I want to give you a very warm welcome. And for all of you old friends, I have been looking forward getting back in the studio to record another installment of the ongoing series of the culinary regions of Mexico. This time, I decided to group the gorgeous coastal states of the Pacific South Coast, which includes the states of Colima, Michoacán, Jalisco, Guerrero and Oaxaca. Already available for you to enjoy are the previous episodes about the culinary regions, including the Pacific Northwest, Huasteca, the Southeast and the Yucatan Peninsula, and the Central High Plains. And so we continue unveiling the treasures, traditions, and culinary creations that bring together the craft, ingenuity, and personality of each corner of Mexico. Many of you have reached out to ask how you can help the show, and the answer is very simple. You can just spread the word with your friends about it, subscribe, write a review and rate it, and of course you can purchase one of my ebooks. And now I have set up a new way of making one-time donations via buymeacoffee.com. Help keeping the lights on and the episodes rolling. So scroll down to this episode's notes to click on the links. By popular demand today, you will again be enjoying wonderful tracks of folk songs from each state at the top of the segments. And on this episode's blog post, you can get the names of the tracks and the interpreters of the songs. I hope you are very hungry because we are about to embark on a very delicious journey. I hope you enjoy this episode. The five states that we will visit today share a vast and fertile coastal ecosystem framed by dramatic mountains and stunning valleys. And in order to understand more about the particular cultures of the states of Jalisco, Colima, Michoacán, Guerrero and Oaxaca, I will present for you some highlights of the cultures, history and geography of each state. Our first stop today is the state of Jalisco. Tierra de popular, que es el alma de... Many of you might be more familiar with the name of its capital, which is Guadalajara, the second largest city of Mexico. 
This huge state is particularly known for its traditions, such as jaripeo and charrerias, which aren't miles away from dressage, except with a very Mexican take. And it is the spiritual birthplace of tequila and mariachi music, of which I will talk a little bit more later on. Like many of Mexico's states, Jalisco is part of the transvolcanic belt, which is largely responsible for the biodiversity and stunning geography of this corner of the world, with its evergreen forests, subtropical plains, grasslands, mountains, forests, and stunning coastline. This state alone is home of a little more than half of the total bird species of Mexico, which are estimated to be around 530. During the splendor of the Aztec or Mexica Empire, its military outreach stretched from Mexico City, or ancient Tenochtitlan, to modern-day Jalisco, which is why the ancient Nahuatl name of this state is Xalisco, which means place covered in sand. And in case you didn't know, Nahuatl was a language spoken by the Aztec, which they imposed on the tribes that were part of the empire. But in this area, there were and still are many other indigenous tribes, such as the Huichol or Vizarrica, Purepecha, Tecos, Otontlantolis, Mesquitic, Zapopan, Otomi, and Mixtec, among others. A curious fact is that after the Spanish conquest of Mexico, part of what is now known as Jalisco was called the Kingdom of Nueva Galicia, then changed to Intendency of Guadalajara and eventually became simply Jalisco. So it almost went full circle, returning to the name given by the previous indigenous conquerors of the territory. The colonial period for Guadalajara was marked by an intense migration of wealthy Spaniards who systematically replicated the Spanish urban style of the time along with a cultural and political model of organization where the church and the viceregal authorities operated as one and the same administrative and political unit. Guadalajara has gifted the nation with many men and women who have been trailblazers in many areas. But I want to mention two famous children of this state. First is one of Latin America's most influential architects, Luis Barragan whose bold style is colorful, clean, and monumental. He even inspired a whole catalog of Barragan colors developed by the paint company Comex. Another fascinating character was the liberal Valentin Gomez Farias, who created numerous reforms to free the nation from the shackles of the political control of the Viceregal government and the Catholic Church. Here's a fun fact for you. Many years ago, I spent a great deal of time at Valentin Gomez Farias's house in Mexico City, where many people swear that his ghostly presence is often seen by the old garden where he was buried. The property is now home of the research institute Dr. Jose Maria Luis Mora, where I did a master's degree. But I personally never had the pleasure to see him. But let's go back to Guadalajara. There is a specific product that is a signature cultural expert of Mexico and of course of Guadalajara, and that indeed is tequila. In the early days of Paso Chipotle, I made an episode about the history of tequila and mezcal, which I encourage you to revisit or listen for the first time. You can look for the link on this episode's notes. And without spoiling that episode for you, I will tell you that many states in Mexico produce a wide variety of mezcales, which is the name given to the category of all agave-based spirits. This technically makes drinks such as tequila a type of mezcal, but don't forget there is a specific spirit also called mezcal. There has been a long ongoing battle about the origins of mezcales, specifically because the technology used to obtain them is commonly assumed to be an European import that was introduced after the conquest of Mexico. After all, the use of metal alloys to build kettles, fermenting units, funnels and pipes was unheard of among pre-Columbian tribes. Mezcales have been produced in Mexico since the 16th century and this agro-industry still continues to thrive to this day. 
the dramatic plains of Tequila, a town considered by many as the spiritual home of the nation's most famous spirit, the large plantations of agave tequilana, also known as blue agave, cover large extensions of the valleys and this agave variety is the only plant used in the preparation of tequila. Mexican tequila has a denomination of origin status registered before the World Industrial Property Organization, meaning that it has international protection and only Mexico can produce authentic tequila. The robust and herbal notes of the roasted agave hearts and the delicate flavors of the wood used in the barrels build layers of aromas and flavors that give each tequila its unique personality. Sadly, thanks to the all-too-common cultural cliches, tequila is believed to be drunk in one rushed shot. But surely, a good connoisseur knows that a good tequila, just like a fine whiskey or cognac, has to be enjoyed slowly and unspoiled, without the need to add any syrups or sodas. So next time you try it, give it a go on its own. Moving on in our itinerary, we find that south to Jalisco is the state of Colima and is one of the smallest states in the nation, but its size doesn't reflect at all the diversity of indigenous communities that settled in the area and among them we can find the Acateco, Amuzgo, Mexica, Chatino, Chichimeca, Chocholteca, Chontal, Chool, Cora and Huasteco tribes. The name of Colima comes from the Nahuatl Coliman, which means place where the god of fire rules. But, annoyingly, it also can be translated as place that our ancestors conquered, meaning that the Mexica or Aztec people, who had quite an aggressive empire, always bragged about their conquerors. But speaking of the god of fire, Colima is also home of one of Mexico's most active volcanoes, known as Volcán de Colima, or simply the Volcano of Fire. This beautiful formation is part of a large mountain range that encanvases the valleys of Colima through a series of small sierras and rolling hills that lead to the coast. Famously, the city of Comala in Colima is the setting of a story by one of Mexico's most loved writers, Juan Rulfo. In the story of Pedro Paramo, Comala is described as a ghost town, sordid, hot and dry, and otherworldly, where Pedro Paramo, the main character, travels to find his father and visit his deceased mother's grave, only to realize, a bit late, spoiler alert, that everyone in Comala are dead including him. Obviously, this is indeed a fantastic story written with a very rich and gripping style. I must have been 10 years old when I first read Pedro Paramo and it absolutely blew my mind and became one of my favorite Mexican novels. You can find a link on this episode's notes for you to get this book. At the beginning of the 17th century, Coconut plantations became one of the most profitable crops in Colima, but it has since diversified greatly and thanks to many other introduced crops, such as blueberries from Europe, tamarind, bananas and pineapple from South Asia, coffee from Africa, mango from Manila, and limes and other citrus fruits from the Middle East. But seafood, and especially tuna, are some of Colima's most valued and profitable exports. Traveling further on the Pacific coastline, we reach the shores of the beautiful state of Michoacán, whose name means land of fishermen. This state is as wealthy in biodiversity as it is in the vibrant cultures of the many indigenous communities that settled here. Thousands of years ago, this was the land of the Tarasco and Purépecha empires, 
who shared their territory with other tribes such as the Otomi, Masawa, Mixteco, and much later, the Mexica Empire also reached this remote land. The outstanding beauty of its mountains and the dense pine and oak forests is crowned by the presence of the monarch butterfly, which is one of the continent's most emblematic insects, whose annual migration is linked to its reproduction cycle, and its habitat covers all of North America, beginning with Mexico, the US and Canada. Every year, these delicate and strong little butterflies cover thousands of miles to find food and shelter from harsh weather conditions. Michoacán is indeed filled with unique landscapes and one of them is the impressive views of the Paricutín, a volcano that was formed only in 1943. The memory of its terrifying and fascinating formation is still vivid in the memory of the thousands of survivors who recalled the rumble of the earth as large deposits of lava found their way to the surface of the earth. The volcano ultimately erupted with such violence that in less than a year of continuous volcanic activity, the lava covered the former town of Paricutin, of which today are only visible church bells and a few rooftops of the old colonial buildings. The survivors relocated near the site and funded the new town of San Juan el Nuevo. There are many traditions and cultural practices that make of Michoacán a perfect destination for travelers in search of vibrant experiences, like the festivities of Day of the Dead at Lake Pátzcuaro, Michoacán's traditional dances and music, the vibrant green glazed pottery of Janitzio, the stunning indigenous embroidery, copper crockery and lavishly wood-carved furniture are some of the many crafts of the state and while the nearby state of Jalisco might be famous for its mariachis, Michoacán produces the nation's best guitars and many other string instruments. The following stop heading south is the tropical paradise of Guerrero. And I want to begin by talking about the origin of the state's name, because that will reveal a fascinating part of Mexico's history. Vicente Ramón Guerrero Saldaña, better known as Vicente Guerrero, was born on August 10, 1782 in Tixtla, only a few kilometers away from the port of Acapulco. By the 18th century, pretty much the majority of the population in colonial Mexico was mixed race, except that in his case, he was Afro-Mestizo. His maternal family descended from African people who were brought into New Spain as part of the slave trade in the New World. But a few generations afterwards, his mother married a wealthy Spanish-Mexican man called Pedro Guerrero, who was a fervent royalist who had a lavish life as part of the rural gentry. But young Vicente saw beyond his unusual privilege and very early in life became a fervent liberal who opposed the suffocating control of the viceregal government and the humiliating racial caste system that ruled the colonial society. So he joined the insurgent forces fighting for the nation's independence, which was eventually won on September 27, 1821. By then, Vicente Guerrero was a seasoned military man, great strategist and a sharp politician who also was a member of the elite Masonic Lodge of York Wright. Vicente's political career ascended rapidly amidst the ideological effervescence of the young independent nation. And by 1829, the unthinkable happened, and he became the second president of the United States of Mexico and the first, and so far, the only Afro-Mexican person to do so. 
Guerrero called for many social reforms, including returning land and titles to mestizo people, promote industry, science, and international trade. But most importantly, he was the first president to ever champion the empowerment of the oppressed indigenous and other mixed-race groups. And one of his first actions as sitting president was to abolish slavery on September 16, 1829. As you can imagine, the Spanish royalist elite conspired against him, and in that first year of his presidency, insurgent traitors and royalists rose against him. Vicente Guerrero was chased, captured, and executed on February 14, 1831. The actual state of Guerrero only exists with its modern limits since 1849, and before that, most of the land of this state was actually part of the Intendency of Puebla, which in the colonial period extended from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific coast. Now, Guerrero's African heritage reveals another critical part of Mexico's history. During the colonial period, Spain, just like the Netherlands, France, England and other European nations, became heavily invested in the slave trade mainly to support the growth of cotton, tobacco and sugarcane plantations in their colonial territories. While African people constituted the largest percentage of the enslaved population, there was also an important trade of Indian and Chinese people, particularly women, who were victims of human trafficking and ended up in New Spain, that is, colonial Mexico. The port of Veracruz was one of the main points of entrance for African slaves, who were often destined to forced labor at the many sugarcane plantations of the region. But there are many accounts of mutinies and rebellions of African slaves who managed to escape into the mountains and traveled huge distances from Veracruz to the Pacific coast in today's region known as Costa Chica, between the states of Guerrero and Oaxaca, where to this day Afro-Mexican communities still live and proudly practice many of their mixed heritage traditions, including music, some linguistic traits, religious practices, and echoes of their original cuisines. But of course Guerrero had its own ancestral indigenous tribes, and they are the Amuzgo, Tlapaneco, Mixteco, and Nahua people. One last thing I want to mention about the port of Acapulco is that for a few hundred years, it was one of the most important merchant ports of the Americas, as all trade and imports of exotic and luxury products from Asia and the Far East, such as silk, pottery, furniture, clothes, and particularly lavish spices and fruits like pineapple, mangoes, papaya, coriander, cloves, cumin, bay leaves, cinnamon, and ginger, among many others, found their way into the Americas and, of course, into our colonial pantries and kitchens, adding a touch of delicious culinary magic to creations that centuries later became signature dishes of the world-acclaimed cuisine of Mexico. Pipianes, moles, caldillos, and adobos owe a great deal to the Colombian exchange at the height of colonialism. I bet you didn't see that coming. I tell you, gastronomy is but a golden key to unlock any door that leads to fascinating stories. The last state that we'll introduce you to today is the wondrous state of Huaxiacac, or as we know it today, Oaxaca, with a staggering total of 570 municipalities and a little over 16 indigenous groups. Oaxaca and its proud people are one of Mexico's most ethnically and linguistically diverse territories. A modern-day road trip to the capital of the state usually involves scenic and dramatic landscapes, courtesy of the Sur and Oaxaca mountain ranges, and it's precisely because of these mountains that most of the villages and towns are so remotely located. But at the heart of the state 
in an area known as the Central Valleys, the capital of the same name, Oaxaca, and many other towns including Ocotlan de Morelos, Putla, Saachila, Atzompa, and Jojocotlan share many cultural and identity traits. While Oaxaca's geography is largely composed by subtropical lands, it also has mid- and high-mountain pine forests, semi-deserts, and of course, a long coastal ecosystem that faces the Pacific Ocean. One interesting thing about this part of Mexico is that thanks to the uncanny number of mountains and canyons, Oaxaca was historically relatively isolated from the rest of the territory. In fact, it wasn't until the construction of the modern motorway that links to Oaxaca, Puebla and Mexico that the capital and the state in general became one of the country's top tourist destinations. The ancestral indigenous people from Oaxaca created stunning urban developments and sophisticated trade routes. And while their descendants are now part of a larger mixed heritage society, they still preserve many of their traditions and models of social organization, but also proudly maintain many aspects of their cultural identity. Among these 16 indigenous groups, we find the Zapotec, Mije, Mixteco, Mazateco, Trique, Soque, Amusgo, Chatino, Popoloca, Chocho, Chontales, and Tacuate, among others. And as I mentioned before, Oaxaca shares with Guerrero a small but little significant area where Afro-Mexican communities live in the Costa Chica. Oaxaca is also a land of artists, intellectuals and notable people who made their mark in the country's political and social life, like painter and sculptor Rufino Tamayo, the photographer Manuel Álvarez Bravo, artist and philanthropist Francisco Toledo, composer Macedonio Alcalá, healer and shaman Maria Savina, and two very different but equally important presidents, Benito Juárez, who created a reform to separate the church from the state, and Porfirio Díaz, who modernized the nation with transport, industrial and urban development, and commissioned many of the architectural landmarks of Mexico City. Equally prolific is Oaxaca's large gastronomic wealth that preserves much of its indigenous personality and ingenuity, which makes of its moles, spirits and sweets a heavenly feast of colors, textures and flavors. As you can see, there is much more besides sandy shores and lazing by the beach. The states of the South Pacific coast of Mexico have an incredibly rich history and a vibrant cultural heritage. And after the break, we will explore more about their culinary traditions with my selection of five dishes from each state. Continue your journey discovering the amazing history behind the delicious Mexican gastronomy and learn to prepare a wonderful cultural feast at home with my ebooks Mexican Market Food, Mexican Fiestas, Mexican Street Food, Mexican Chocolate, and Puebla's Great Food Tour. With dozens of stories, recipes, and vibrant photography, each book is a window into the grand culinary traditions of Mexico. To know more about my ebooks and start the making of your own family traditions, go to pastachipotle.com forward slash publications. Find the link on this episode's notes and get ready to cook, learn, and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. And now, from west to east, we will follow the edible trail of the South Pacific coast, and our first stop is Colima.
You might be familiar with the very famous Mexican pozole, which traditionally is either red, white, or green. But the state of Colima is home of a very curious style, and that is the intriguing dry pozole. While in many states of Mexico, pozole is considered either as a soup or a stew, in the state of Colima, pozole is served almost as a salad on top of crisp tostadas flavored with juicy pork meat, arbol chiles, onion, lime, radishes, and shredded cabbage. Also from Colima, there's a very curious ceviche that doesn't contain fish, and is called parota ceviche. Parota is the name of a famous tree that is native to this state, and it produces a fruit the size of a broad bean, and is served in a ceviche with tortilla crisps or crackers. Number three, Colima produces a very special spirit called Tuxca. It is made following rustic methods of distilling and is considered a type of mezcal, just like tequila. Tuxca is the perfect companion to spike coffee, fruit punch, or to enjoy on its own. Traditionally, Tuxca is stored in barrels made with a very special wood from the parota tree. Number four, we have Tatemado de Puerco, which is stew prepared with a distinctive flavor of pickled pork in coconut vinegar, which is then cooked in a rich sauce flavored with bay leaves, cumin, garlic, thyme, pepper, and pasilla chiles. And last from Colima, I have to give a mention to its delicious coffee. The state's numerous subtropical mountains and valleys have the perfect conditions to grow coffee, which makes it one of the 14 coffee-producing states of Mexico. The coffee of Colima really captures the terroir of this magical coastal state. And if you are a fervent coffee lover, make sure you listen to both of my special episodes on the history of coffee in Mexico. Find the links on this episode's notes. Most Mexican people think of two things when they hear the name of Michoacán, carnitas and tamales. So top on the list of foods from Michoacán, I have to mention carnitas. Indeed, the internationally renowned carnitas, that is confit slow-cooked pork, are simmered in their own fat in specially made copper pots. The tender and juicy meat is chopped and served in tacos or tortas and garnished with lime, onion, coriander, and of course, the unmissable touch of salsas. Next, corundas and uchepos. They are two very different and very special types of corn-steamed tamales. Corundas have a signature triangular shape and the batter of which they are made of is made with nixtamalized corn masa, enriched with lard, salt, and chicken broth, served with different guisados or dishes, and usually enjoyed with lavish helpings of fresh cream with a side of tender poblano chili slices and cheese. Legend has it that the Purépecha emperor Kaltzontzin was particularly fond of corundas, which, I forgot to mention, are wrapped with the long and fresh leaves of corn canes freshly cut from the plant while they're still green. Uchepos, by contrast, are tamales made with freshly harvested corn. The juicy kernels are ground into a paste and lightly seasoned. And like most Mexican tamales, uchepos are cooked, wrapped in rehydrated corn husks and steamed. Uchepos have a distinctive fresh and almost sweet flavor which is why they're only served with cream and crumbled cheese, just to highlight the delicate flavor of the tamal. Next, a Moorish soup made with ground bio beans and freshly made tomato pureed with a touch of anto chiles. This creamy soup is served with cream, <laughs> crumbled cheese, toasted ancho chiles, and freshly made tortilla chips, and its name is Sopa Tarasca and it is believed to be a more elaborate version of an ancient purépecha soup. And last from Michoacán, I want to give an honorary mention to charanda. 
which is usually regarded as a working-class moonshine. This spirit is incredibly strong, but enjoyed with respect is actually quite nice, especially when you serve it with spicy food like tacos de carnitas and other unapologetic delicacies. Next, a sample of the foods of Jalisco. Number one, the queen of hangover foods, Sunday brunches and irrepressible cravings, birria jalisciense. Prepared with the tender meat of young goats, birria is a spiced soup or stew that is slow-cooked and served with a lavish garnish of strong chopped onion, coriander, chopped arbol chiles, and lime. This dish is not for the fainted-hearted, because the meat and broth have a very particular and strong smell. And since this recipe takes a straightforward nose-to-tail approach, the textures can be slightly challenging for the casual picky eater. But don't be put off by that. Next time you come across birria in a menu, give it a go. Number two, Jalisco is the birthplace of the famous tortas ahogadas. You might have heard about Mexican tortas, which are mistakenly called sandwiches, when in fact they are closer to a panini because we use a whole piece of bread to stuff it with delicious fillings. The buns used to make tortas ahogadas, or drowned tortas, are crusty and crunchy, and often filled with comfy pork meat, or carnitas, and half covered with lavish spoonfuls of salsa made with a very strong chile from Yahualica, native to the state of Jalisco. Number three, true to Mexico's surprising history, we find the aromatic caldo michi, which is a rich fish soup. Urban legend has it that Toshino Nagamote and his family immigrated from Japan in the 20th century to Mexico, and soon after they settled, they started a business selling fish soup at the market of San Juan de Dios. And very little after that, a new tradition was born. The origins of the name of this soup aren't very clear. While some say it was named after a naughty family cat who kept on stealing fish from the kitchen, others say that it was named after a dear family friend and customer. But whatever the origin is, today Caldo Michi is one of Jalisco's signature and delicious dishes. Number four, we have a dessert that divides families and friendships, just like Marmite or Brussels sprouts that you either hate it or love it. And this is a dessert that is not only exclusively prepared in Jalisco, but it's certainly a regional favorite, and that is capirotada. Capirotada is traditionally served during Easter because the ingredients and the preparation have different meanings and symbolisms attached to them. So what's in a capirotada? Well, the base ingredient is a stale baguette or pieces of white crusty bread sliced and drizzled with jaggery or piloncillo syrup and butter. Then they're either fried or baked and drizzled again with more syrup and topped with toasted peanuts, raisins and dry cheese. It is quite dry but crunchy at the same time. People even use manchego cheese to add a touch of saltiness. The combination of textures and flavors are very unusual and admittedly I'm not at all a fan of capirotada. I mean, one thing is to be a gastronomy researcher, and another very different is that I have to like each and every Mexican dish. So please don't give me any heat for that. Now, I will cheat a bit with the last dish from Jalisco, because I want to mention first that pozole rojo is the state's staple pozole, with an abundant and piquant broth infused with delicious guajillo piquín and sometimes puya chiles. And the star ingredient is of course cacahuacintle corn, or rather the kernels of this corn that are cooked until they burst, resembling enormous fleshy popcorn infused with pork meat. 
And I will sneak one of my favorite drinks from Jalisco, and that is tepache, made with fermented pineapple skins. Like many things in life, things aren't always quite what they seem. Many Mexicans wrongly assume that pineapple is as Mexican as lime or coriander. But guess what? Neither of these ingredients are originally from this part of the world. They were actually introduced into Mexico in the 16th century after traveling across the Pacific all the way from Asia. But indeed, we did our best to embrace them and prepare amazing things with them, like this refreshing fermented drink that is flavored with more imports like cinnamon, jaggery, which is made from sugarcane, and cloves. And, incidentally, my own step-by-step -step recipe to prepare a delicious tepache with my ebook Mexican Street Food. Next on our menu is the food of Guerrero. I always think of pozole blanco when I talk about Guerrero. Pozole blanco is served with generous teaspoons of ground oregano, powdered pekin chili, finely julienned iceberg lettuce, fried tostadas, radishes, chopped onion, and lashes of freshly squeezed lime juice. Ay, pozole. Number two, a drink that is also of mixed heritage origin called chilate. This is a refresher made with toasted and ground cocoa beans, cinnamon and rice, sweetened with jaggery. To make the drink, all the ingredients are ground into a paste and then dissolved in water that is chilled and served with loads of ice. A perfect pygmyog for the suffocating heat of tropical Guerrero. Number 3. Much I have talked about the Afro-Caribbean presence in the Costa Chica region. Well, one of their signature dishes is caldo cuatete, a lavish soup made with crab, shrimp, cuatete fish, guajillo chiles, epazote herb, garlic, and onion, among other ingredients. This delicious soup is very popular along the Guerrero coastline. Number four, of course we have loads of ceviches, because they are incredibly popular and prepared with all sorts of fish and seafood combinations. One particularly famous from the port of Acapulco is Octopus in Love, or Pulpo Enamorado, which, in spite of being very simple, this dish has the added challenge of cooking the octopus to perfection, without spoiling the meat and turning it into a rubbery and chewy mess. And last from Guerrero, Probably not the most usual choice of culinary creations that I mentioned, but I want to give a shout to a local soda that has its rightful place at every self-respecting family table. And this is Yoli. Yoli is a lime carbonated soda with a soft citrus touch that comes down as a blessing on any hot day. If there's anyone listening from Guerrero, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Iced Yolis. Yummy. Feliz. 
cielos de mi corazón. Si And last but definitely not least, a very hard to create list of unmissable dishes from Oaxaca. Okay, okay, let me say this before we start. I'm totally going to cheat because there are so many grand and delicious dishes from Oaxaca that I found it really hard to compress them all in just five. So I decided to group some of them. The first group is all of the seven moles of Oaxaca. And in no particular order, they are mole negro, amarillito, coloradito, mole verde, chichilo, mole rojo, and mancha manteles. Each and every one of them has distinctive and very specific ingredients and cooking methods that produce unique textures, aromas and flavors, all served in different ways with different meats and garnishings. Like with all traditional fruits who were born in domestic kitchens and have been passed on from one person to another, there isn't a canonical recipe to prepare any of these moles, but there is a consensus about the ingredients that had to be used in every one of them to achieve that precious level of authenticity. Number 2. Telayudas much less sophisticated than the grand moles, tlayudas are a delicious street food prepared with one single piece of corn tortilla, which is about the size of a family pizza, but it is impossibly thin and perfectly circular. It is laced with asiento, which is the residual cooked lard after cooking pork skins and carnitas, then is covered with a delicate paste of stone ground black beans, gently infused with hoja santa topped with handfuls of creamy strings of pulled quesillo or Oaxacan string cheese, sprinkled with shredded cabbage, and topped with either a piece of tasajo or grilled flank steak, chorizo, or no meat, but then topped with chapulines or grasshoppers, if you want that crunch, avocado, onion, and tomato slices, and finally, delicious miltomate salsa, made with tender sweet tomatoes that grow in the shade of corn and beans. And yes, of course you can tell I'm a total fan of Tlayudas, but hey, mmm, yummy Tlayudas. Number three, here's another group, Garnachitas Ismeñas. Garnachitas is a generic name for several types of finger foods made with fresh corn dough fried in either lard or oil topped with pulled beef, pickles, cheese and salsa. And obviously they are washed down with a very iced cold beer. Number 4. Tamal Oaxaqueño this is a breakfast or dinner king made with an elegant, strained and velvety corn butter mixed with chicken and black Oaxacan mole wrapped with banana leaves. And when these tamales are steamed, the banana leaf releases some of its natural oils that infuse the tamal. These tamales are very soft and really melt in your mouth like butter. And number five, and cheating again, I will group the sweets ice creams and aguas frescas from Oaxaca, all prepared with seasonal fruits with simple but elegant recipes that highlight the natural flavors and textures of the ingredients. It is always delightful to take some time to sit and enjoy a rose petal ice cream, prickle pear sorbet, drink a strawberry horchata or chilacayota agua fresca are indeed some of life's simple but very revered pleasures, especially in Oaxaca. And I want to close down mentioning the delicious corn flan called nicuatole, coconut meringues, frothy chocolate and iced tejate drink, which are some of the many local delicacies that you can enjoy at Oaxaca's markets, plazas and streets. And with this, we say goodbye to yet another beautiful culinary region of Mexico, with its mountains, valleys, coasts, and the immense wealth of its mixed heritage communities that for hundreds of years have showed us how creativity and resourcefulness are essential when creating a gastronomic legacy. 
but also being flexible, intuitive and willing to embrace new traditions, ingredients and methods are the key to evolve, grow and enrich our gastronomic repertoire. So, adios to Colima and its volcanoes, Michoacán and the beauty of its colorful landscape, Jalisco and its proud ranchero heritage, Guerrero with his vibrant dishes and smoky mezcal, and Oaxaca, the land where blue mountains gift us with ethereal sunsets that illuminate its beautiful colonial cities. Adios Costa Sur del Pacífico Mexicano. Ahora que lejos yo vivo sin luz, sin amor Y al verme tan sola y triste cual hoja al viento Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir de sentimiento Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To find all the links and additional information that I mentioned today over the episode, scroll down on your podcast app to find them all, or you can also click on the link to this episode's blog post if you want to read them on a big computer screen. Guess what? I have been dying to share with you my new audio production entirely dedicated to explore books on the subject of food. My new podcast, Hungry Books, is finally available on all major podcast apps, and you can now listen to the first two episodes. The first is a revision of an autobiography by the chef Gabriel Hamilton, and in the second episode I talk about a book called X or Anarchy by William Sitwell. And of course, there's a link for that on this episode's notes. So scroll down, click and have a listen, because I'm sure that if you like Pasa Chipotle, you will also enjoy Hungry Books. To help me and these shows grow and continue to keep amazing episodes like this coming, please help me spread the word about them. Share them on social media and with your friends. Subscribe and leave a review for them. You can also give a one-time donation to the shows via buymeacoffee.com. The link is on this episode's notes. Remember that you can always reach out to me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and you can send me an email to hello at pasachipotle.com. You can subscribe for free to my newsletter and receive news, discounts, and exclusive content. Well, that's it for me, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>